Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to talk about musculoskeletal anatomy and disorders that can occur that we would see in some of the patients that we deal with. The ones that we want to focus on today are muscular dystrophy, myasthenia gravis, and Lambert-Eaton, as well as familial periodic paralysis. There's a lot of other ones that we can discuss, but we feel like these are some of the more important ones that we want to go over today. For the most part, we want to stay with the anatomy on how an action potential is brought down the neuron to the synapse, sends a signal across to the muscle, and how the muscle depolarizes, and what issues that can develop in that anatomy with these different disorders and how that's going to affect our anesthesia treatment. The neuromuscular junction is what we're really going to be talking about today. And this will pull a little bit from the ANS discussion and also from the pain pathway discussion when we're talking about the different receptors and also the action potential going down the axon. So with this pathway, if you remember your cross-section of your spinal cord, you have the um, basically H shape that is the gray matter there. And in the ventral horn is going to be the cell bodies for your somatic nervous system. So this is going to send out action potentials down the myelinated alpha motor neuron to the neuromuscular junction. So what that'll do at the nerve terminal is it's going to open these voltage-gated calcium channels. What this does is cause an influx of calcium into the terminal, and calcium is going to act like a cross bridge between these proteins on the neuron terminal and these vesicles that are housing acetylcholine. So the calcium will, in essence, bridge the gap between these vesicles and the lining of the terminal, and this will allow the vesicles to fuse with the lining of the terminal and release the contents of acetylcholine into the neuromuscular junction. From there, they will go across the neuromuscular junction and act on the receptors on the postsynaptic side. So as the acetylcholine gets released from the terminal of the neuron, a couple things happen. It goes across and it binds to nicotinic receptors on the cell membrane of the muscle. These nicotinic receptors are located in a greater quantity at an area called the motor end plate. And when the nicotinic receptor is bound by the acetylcholine, it's going to cause sodium to rush into the cell because it's a channel protein, which allows ions to freely cross through. So sodium is going to rush in, which also allows potassium to rush out. And this causes a depolarization in the muscle cell. This depolarization will run across the membrane of the muscle cell away from this motor implant down the cell membrane until it reaches a point called the T-tubule. What the T-tubule is is basically an indent where the membrane of the cell has a, a loop and it dips down into the center of the cell and back out and then continues along the outside. And what this allows for is the depolarization to run down into the center of the cell and activate a DHP receptor. This DHP receptor is connected on the inside of the cell to a ranidine receptor. And what ranidine receptors are, are gated receptors on the end of the sarcoplastic reticulum. And the sarcoplastic reticulum is what houses the intercellular calcium levels. So this calcium is stored in the sarcoplastic reticulum and not allowed to freely go throughout the cell. Once the depolarization comes down the T-tubule, it causes the DHP receptor to move. 
which is connected to that ranadine receptor and causes the ranadine to open up and allows calcium to rush out into the cell. So once the calcium is released from the sarcoplasmic reticulum into the inside of the cell, it'll bind to troponin. If you remember from your phys classes, you have the diagram of the actin and the myosin and the cross bridges that can form. We're not going to go into the details of that today, but this calcium that's released from the sarcoplasmic reticulum will come and bind to troponin on these cross bridges and allow the contraction to occur. The one thing we do want to talk about with the actin and myosin is that once that cross bridge has occurred and contraction occurs, the only way to release it is for the presence of ATP to be there. And once that ATP binds, it is allowed to release that contraction. And that'll come into play here when we talk about some of these diseases. But just remember, once calcium is present, that's what signals the start of this contraction. And as long as calcium is there, we will continue to have contraction. The way to get rid of the calcium is by the circuit pumps that basically use ATP to actively pump calcium back up into the sarcoplasmic reticulum and away from these fibers that cause the contraction. So just to recap where we've gone so far, you have from the ventral root of the spinal cord, you have an action potential sent down the alpha motor neuron, depolarizes the neuron terminal, which causes an influx of calcium. This signals the release of acetylcholine from the vesicles that fuse with the membrane. Those go across the neuromuscular junction. They will attach to the nicotinic receptors on the post-junctional side. From there, the depolarization will cause the DHP receptor in these T-tubules to open the rionidine receptor, which allows the calcium to exit the sarcoplasmic reticulum, which causes your crossbridge formation and then causes your muscle contraction. So we, we understand the pathway from beginning to end, albeit this is a simple explanation of it. But we want to go back and discuss a little more clearly when we talk about the nicotinic receptor, the acetylcholine receptor on the postsynaptic side of the neuromuscular junction. When we discuss neuromuscular blocking agents, it's important that we understand what this receptor looks like. And also, as we discuss some of the diseases later, it'll be important to understand these receptors in terms of the meds that we give, whether this will cause an increased reaction, if it will cause a limited reaction. And so let's back up and talk about these receptors. These are made up of five proteins. The junctional receptor will have two alphas, a beta, a delta, and an epsilon unit. You'll hear the terms denervated, extrajunctional, or immature acetylcholine receptors. In these extrajunctional, you will replace the epsilon for a gamma subunit. This is normal in development, but usually by age two, this is gone and you just have your junctional receptor, which has the epsilon unit, not the gamma unit. So it'd be the two alphas, beta, delta, and the epsilon unit. It's important to note with these that in fetus development, there's not going to be that innervation from the axon coming down and stimulating these nicotinic receptors. And that's why you have these immature nicotinic receptors. So when we get into these disease processes that we're going to talk about where there's a lack of innervation occurring, these muscle cells will result back to their immature form and start developing these extrajunctional receptors that you usually see in the fetus population when there's no innervation. So we understand that these have five proteins that make this receptor, two alpha units. And these are 
especially important when you discuss the activation of these receptors. And so usually when you have this whole process that we just discussed, you have acetylcholine across the neuromuscular junction. So both of these alpha subunits is where the acetylcholine will bind. And this allows for sodium and calcium to go into the cell and potassium to come out of the cell. This is important because when we talk about neuromuscular blockers, this is one of the places that these will have an effect. When you have your depolarizing muscle relaxants, these will bind to both alpha subunits and act similarly to the acetylcholine, which again, we're not going to get into that too much today, but it's going to cause depolarization and then will eventually allow for the muscle blockade. So next we want to talk about myasthenia gravis, and this is a chronic autoimmune disorder that is caused by a decrease in the functional acetylcholine receptors at the neuromuscular junction. And this decreased functional acetylcholine receptors are going to be resulting from the destruction or inactivation of them by circulating IgG antibodies. And as much as 80% of the functional acetylcholine receptors can be lost from this. As you can imagine, when you have the decreased amount of functional nicotinic receptors on the muscle membranes, you're going to have patients that are going to be weaker. They're going to be easily fatigable. They, especially throughout the day, they're going to start better at the beginning of the day. And then as they continue to, to move and exercise throughout the day, they're going to be using up their resources of acetylcholine that's going to be binding to these functional receptors. And then they're going to start to get weaker and weaker and weaker throughout the day. Especially what we're concerned about with these patients are going to be bulbar muscle weakness. So you got to really think here an increased pulmonary aspiration risk. So from a neuromuscular blockade standpoint, when you have a patient with myasthenia gravis, we need to think about how the decreased level of functional receptors are going to be affected by whether we give a depolarizing or a non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking agent. And if we give a non-depolarizer, so let's say I give rocuronium, what that's going to do is block the functional nicotinic receptors. Well, there's a smaller amount of these nicotinic receptors that are going to be available to be blocked to begin with, because some of them are already destroyed or impaired by the IgG antibodies. So the patients with myasthenia gravis are going to be very sensitive to any non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking agent. But on the flip side, if I'm going to give succinylcholine, so a depolarizing agent that works by causing a mass depolarization to the muscle cell, well, now there's less nicotinic receptors to respond to the succinylcholine. So patients with myasthenia gravis are going to be resistant to a dose of succinylcholine, and you're going to have to get an increased dosage of succinylcholine to these patients. So that all makes sense. Why don't we talk here next about what these patients will typically see in regards to their treatment. Typically, you'll see treatment with an anticholinesterase such as pyridostigmine, and this is, you know, a lot of times we think of treating with a medication, treating a disease with a medication, and you have pretty standardized dosage. Here, the standard dosage for pyridostigmine is usually around 600 milligrams daily. The, the thing that you need to think about here, though, and why this is a little more tricky than just face value, you know, having a specific dosage. As you think about everything that Cole was just talking about at the neuromuscular junction and exactly what's happening with the acetylcholine binding to these nicotinic receptors. So if you give too much anticholinesterase, if you have too high of a dose, then there's going to be excess acetylcholine that is going to be there in the neuromuscular junction. 
we're blocking the anticholinesterase, which would be breaking down the acetylcholine. So if we're blocking the acetylcholinesterases, then you're going to have increased acetylcholine. And here you can see almost like a depolarized block that you can see with these patients because of the increased amount of acetylcholine there in the neuromuscular junction. So this is what you would consider a cholinergic crisis. So too much of an anticholinesterase drug blocking these anticholinesterases then you're going to see increased acetylcholine and this is your cholinergic crisis. You can actually see muscle weakness. Again, we talked, you could possibly see like a depolarizing like block here. So you can still see muscle weakness and this could eventually lead to needing to support them from like a respiratory standpoint, depending on the severity of this cholinergic crisis. On the flip side, if you've not given enough acetylcholinesterase, so you have too low of a dose, then the patient is going to also have severe muscle weakness just simply due to a limited amount of acetylcholine that's available there in that junction. So we're not blocking those acetylcholinesterases. So they're going to continue to break down the acetylcholine. And then we have a limited number of functional nicotinic receptors anyways. And now we have a decreased number of uh, acetylcholine or not an optimum number, I should say. And so that can cause increased weakness there simply because you don't have enough acetylcholine to be effective. Some things to keep in mind here, because if you're listening to this, you sound similar on both sides of it. When we're talking about the reduction in of acetylcholine causing the weakness, this is considered a myasthenic crisis. So cholinergic crisis was you had too much acetylcholine, too little is going to be the myasthenic crisis. Again, here, you're going to see respiratory fatigue. Oftentimes, you're going to need to see these patients that are put on ventilator support. They're going to have difficulty clearing their upper airway. Oral secretions lead to a risk for aspiration. So again, to secure the patient airway is going to be a really high priority for these, these patients. Some things that can kind of trigger this or bring this on, emotional stress, pulmonary infections, uh, even surgery, that stress on the body can cause an increased risk for myasthenic crisis. So important to keep that in mind, kind of a balancing act on either side of that with the dosage of anticholinesterases. So our treatment is going to be different depending on which side of the scale these patients are on. So if a patient has muscle weakness, again, we don't know if that's because of a cholinergic crisis or because of a myasthenic crisis. So we need to determine, you know, which side is causing this issue. Tensilon test, you're going to give one to two milligrams IV of edrophonium. And this is one way that we can decide what's really underlying going on with the patient. So if the patient's weakness improves after giving edrophonium, then the patient is likely in a myasthenic crisis. I mean, this makes sense because edrophonium is a anticholinesterase. And so if you have weakness that's related to too little of acetylcholine, when you give the edrophonium and you see an increased response or an improved response, that's because you have increased acetylcholine here at the neuromuscular junction, which is allowing them to have the increased strength and improvement in their state. If the patient gets weaker, then you're looking at a cholinergic crisis. This makes sense because you're going to see increased acetylcholine and acetylcholine is already what's causing the issue, the cholinergic crisis. So you're going to have an increased amount and then the patient's picture is going to get worse. In this case, you need to give an anticholinergic. So now let's run through if you do have a patient who is in a myasthenia crisis and you have to do surgery on these patients, what are the things that are going to be going through your mind? What are the things that we need to be considering? So hopefully by the time they get to you for surgery, they're already going to be intubated and mechanically ventilated. If not, you're, you're probably going to be wanting to do 
a general anesthetic with an ET tube, and they're probably going to remain on a ventilator and go back to the ICU after the case. But if they do come to you already intubated from the ICU for this urgent or emergent case, things that you want to make sure with the medical team that are, are getting done is reversing the crisis at hand here. So obviously, as Tanner mentioned, you probably have already done the Tensilon test. You figured out we are in a myasthenic crisis as opposed to a cholinergic crisis. And when you decide you are in a myasthenic crisis, how are we going to A, increase the acetylcholine? So you're going to be giving more medication and more anticholinesterase medication to increase that. But secondly, we got to figure out how do we acutely reduce this acute exacerbation of the myasthenia crisis with these IgG antibodies. And so things you can do is plasma paresis, and you can clear out of the plasma those IgG antibodies. And then in turn, you would give intravenous immunoglobin transfusion to get healthy and productive IgG antibodies in their plasma. And so these are things that maybe they are coming down to you before they can get this started in the ICU. If you have a long case, you may be starting this during the case. Uh, this may be something that you're working with the team to get involved when you go back to the ICU and you would keep the patient intubated until we can get this acute exacerbation corrected. Secondly, if this is not an emergent or urgent case, we're not going to be taking the patient back and, and doing a surgery until we can get this acute exacerbation medically under control. So this would only be something that we're going to take care of these patients if it is deemed an urgent or emergent case. But again, if you get these patients down and you're going to be given that neuromuscular blockade, just remember they're going to be very sensitive to the non-depolarizing agents and resistant to succinylcholine. But again, here, you're going to be working a lot with communication with the medical team, figuring out if we are doing that plasmapheresis, the IV immunoglobin transfusion, this may be something that you're giving the transfusion in the OR during the surgery and make sure that you are going to be keeping the patient intubated and mechanically ventilated until we can get them stabilized from this acute exacerbation. The next one we want to talk about is Lambert-Eaton syndrome. This mirrors very closely with the myasthenia gravis. The mechanism of this disease is different, however. If you remember, myasthenia gravis is where the IgG is blocking the nicotinic receptors on the post-synaptic side of the neuromuscular junction. Lambert-Eaton is where you have IgG antibodies destroying the voltage-gated calcium channels on the presynaptic terminal. So like we talked about with the anatomy, the calcium is important to create this cross bridge, which allows the vesicles to release acetylcholine. So without calcium coming in, we will have no acetylcholine release, and then it'll look very similar to myasthenia gravis with the muscle weakness. It's important to note that this looks a little bit differently where myasthenia gravis gets weaker throughout the day. And with exercise, Lambert Eaton actually improves throughout the day. Uh, with their muscle strength. What you will see for treatment with these patients is 3,4-diaminopyridine, and you often see that as 3,4-DAP. dap And basically what that does is it blocks the potassium channels. That allows calcium channels to stay open longer, which since we're dealing with fewer calcium channels is very important to allow more calcium to come into the terminal therefore releasing the acetylcholine. This is often associated with small cell lung carcinoma. It's important to know that with these patients, they're going to be sensitive to both succinylcholine and non-depolarizing. So depolarizing and non-depolarizing muscle relaxants. Another disease process we want to talk about is familial periodic paralysis. It's more acute episodes of weakness in the skeletal muscle, and it's due to change in the serum potassium concentration. So there's two sides of this. It can either be caused by hypokalemia or hyperkalemia. 
So the difference in the pathophys is that when you have a hypokalemic serum level, what this causes is the calcium channel does not operate as properly. And so we're not going to have this cascade of depolarization through the process that we talked about. And you're going to have paralysis because the muscle is going to be unable to contract. Whereas when you have hyperkalemia, this will cause alterations with the sodium channel. And again, same thing, you're not going to be able to have the depolarization occur through the anatomy we talked about, and you're going to have paralysis. So it's important to note when you have the paralysis, you need to check which side of the spectrum we're on here. Are we hypokalemic or are we hyperkalemic? Because that's going to affect how we treat these patients. So the treatment of this and what drugs you will give or refrain from giving depends on if we're in the hypokalemic or the hyperkalemic state. So if you're in the hypokalemic state, you can treat it by obviously giving potassium either IV or orally. And then in terms of our anesthetic considerations, we don't want to do anything that would decrease our potassium even further. So both your non-depolarizing and your depolarizing muscular blockers are safe here because succinylcholine, when it binds to the nicotinic receptor, it allows sodium to rush in, as Tanner was saying earlier, but it also allows potassium to rush out, which will increase our serum level of potassium. So in the hyperkalemic paralysis, we don't want to give succinylcholine for the reason that it's going to further increase our potassium, but we are still safe to give our non-depolarizers. And then again, in the hyperkalemic paralysis, we just want to refrain from doing anything that's going to increase your potassium even further. So we can treat it just how you would if you have a renal failure patient that has elevated potassium levels, you can give insulin and dextrose to try to decrease it. Uh, just get that potassium back down and you should see the paralysis reverse itself. So again, in treating this, it's, it's more an acute episode just simply based on the alteration in the serum potassium level. It's just important to see which side of the spectrum you're on and treat it appropriately from there. So the last one that we want to talk about today is muscular dystrophy. Two main categories here is Duchenne's muscular dystrophy and also Becker muscular dystrophy. And the pathophysiology here is with the protein dystrophin. So dystrophin is going to basically anchor the actin and myosin to the cell membrane. When you don't have this, so in Duchenne's, you have the absence of this dystrophin, whereas in Becker's, you just have a decreased amount of the dystrophin. What it's going to do is cause holes in the cell membrane. So you'll have calcium that's leaking in, you'll have potassium leaking out, and this will cause an increase in your serum potassium, can have cardiac implications. And then also, as you have muscle breakdown, you will have release of myoglobin, and creatinine and those types of things that will also be able to be seen in your blood. This is uh, often associated with malignant hyperthermia. It's important to know that these are not related. And what Tanner means by that is we're going to see a lot of the same symptoms that we see in malignant hyperthermia. So with the holes in the cell membrane, you have the calcium that it's going to continually rush into the cell and cause that contraction. And we're not going to be able to keep up from an ATP standpoint with the continual contraction. And so we're going to start doing anaerobic respiration and have an elevated entitled CO2 level. And we're going to have the same kind of effects that you would see in the malignant hyperthermia, but the disease pop process is completely different than malignant hyperthermia. With the myoglobin that's leaking out of the cell, it can cause some kidney injury. So that's something to, to note with these patients is they may have some decreased kidney function. So keep that in mind when you're considering different 
drugs to give. In terms of the potassium being higher, it'll cause some cardiac complications. It can often be seen with some increased R wave amplitude and deep Q waves. This also decreases your gastric motility. So keep in mind, if you have gastric hypomotility, these patients are more at risk of having aspiration occur. So we want to do a rapid sequence induction with these patients and don't give depolarizing agents such as succinylcholine or volatile anesthetics because both of these will increase the risk of having these effects that we see with malignant hyperthermia, such as the elevated potassium levels and the increase in the myoglobin being brought out of the cell, et cetera. Another reason we don't want to give sucks in these patients, uh, patients with muscular dystrophy develop a lot more of these extra junctional receptors that we talked about at the beginning of our talk. So when you give sucks, it's going to depolarize more receptors because there's more receptors there. And again, it's just going to further exacerbate the issue of that continual calcium influx and contraction of this muscle with an increase in that potassium leaking out of the cell. So that's one of the reasons that we don't want to give sucks. And because we don't want to give volatile anesthetics, we need to ensure that the machine is completely cleaned out so there's no residual volatile anesthetics left from our previous case. So what this entails is completely disconnecting the vaporizers from the machine, using a high fresh gas flow running through the machine for at least 30 minutes prior to the next procedure, just doing anything and everything that we can to make sure there are no residual volatile anesthetics left in our machine when these these patients come into the OR. Great. Well, I think that is a brief summary of the neuromuscular junction and the diseases that will have an effect on that neuromuscular junction. Hope this was helpful and just a brief recap of things that we need to consider as we provide our anesthesia care. 